Welcome to Global Dispatches, a podcast about foreign policy and world affairs. I'm your host, Mark Leon Goldberg, editor of UN Dispatch. And in this show, we discuss topical global issues, have conversations with foreign affairs thought leaders and newsmakers, and give you the context you need to understand the world today. Go to globaldispatchespodcast.com to learn more. And now on with the show. A protest movement in Sudan is posing the biggest challenge to the genocidal regime of Omar al-Bashir in decades. The protests began just before Christmas, ostensibly over an increase in the price of bread, and they quickly spread. Predictably, the regime has responded with violence, but nevertheless, these protests persist. On the line with me to discuss the origins of this protest movement, how it spread, and whether or not it may take down the nearly 30-year reign of Omar al-Bashir is Zachariah Cherian Mampili. He is a professor of political science and international studies at Vassar College, and in this episode, we discuss both what has made the regime of Bashir so enduring and how this protest movement may evolve over the coming weeks and months. I personally found this conversation extremely, extremely helpful for understanding what's happening in Sudan right now. Uh, before we begin, I wanted to let you know about a way you can share this podcast with others who are similarly interested in global issues beyond the headlines. I'm launching a referral program in which for the simple act of telling people about the show, you can earn some freebies and rewards from me. If you tell just one person about the show, I'll send you my specially curated list of over 50 Twitter handles and Instagram accounts that every global affairs nerd should follow. The rewards get better from there, including a podcast mug and tote bag and a free trial of my Don's Digest news clip service. To learn more and enter this limited time promotion that I'm running, please go to globaldispatchespodcast.com or click on the link in the description field of this podcast episode. That will take you to the referral program landing page. Please do it now. Think of a few people who might appreciate learning about this show, and you'll earn some rewards for yourself in the process. It's a selfless act. All right, now here is my conversation with Professor Zachariah Cherian Mampili. Looking for a trustworthy podcast to bring you unfiltered viewpoints and experiences on global health? Tune into Global Health Matters, the podcast that connects silos and amplifies diverse voices to give you a holistic picture. Each month, Dr. Gary Aslanian from the World Health Organization hosts discussions with guests spanning former ministers of health, award-winning journalists and authors, and frontline public health workers. Join listeners from across 180 countries for an exciting Season 4, launching in June. Global Health Matters is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and YouTube. So the protests began uh, shortly after a spike in bread prices that occurred short, uh, a few days before Christmas uh, in 2018 now. Uh, and they began uh, unusually in a, a somewhat isolated town uh, called Atbara, which has historically been a, a site of tremendous union activity, but over the past decades, uh, as Sudan has moved away from any sort of industrial activity, uh, has been confronted by a severe sort of prolonged economic crises. Uh, and then after beginning in Atbara, they quickly spread to other parts of the country uh, before eventually arriving in Khartoum shortly uh, around Christmas last year. 
Uh, and since then, they've only continued to uh, occur in a variety of different towns around the country. Uh, and the government has really tried to crack down on them using both violent and other means. Uh, but thus far, the protests have continued and, and they are likely to continue in the future. So we're headed towards some sort of uh, reckoning at some point, but it's not clear exactly what that would look like. So who are the protesters? Like, do they fit into any sort of like um, demographic category? It's actually a pretty broad coalition of different forces. What is interesting with these protests uh, is that they were not organized by Sudan's small uh, formal civil society sector. So it wasn't, say, the NGOs in Khartoum, uh, nor was it organized by the opposition parties. Uh, instead, it really seems to be more uh, of a grassroots uprising by workers, by students, uh, by ordinary people who really took to the streets out of a sense of frustration, both with the economic situation, but also the longer political crisis that has affected the country now for at least a couple of decades. Um, as the protests began to gain steam, we've seen other forces start to emerge. So we're starting to see, uh, we started to see more professional associations uh, joining in with the protests, non-governmental organizations. And then again, around uh, around Christmas, uh, a number of the opposition parties have started to lend their support uh, to the protesters as well. So it has been a, a fairly broad-based movement, um, both in terms of its geographic range as well as the different demographics that have been involved. And I think one of the interesting things, which is really hard to uh, fully comprehend, and, and it's not quite clear the extent of the phenomenon, but there have been consistent reports uh, of even members of the of the military uh, removing their uniforms and, and siding with the protesters. So it really is a, a broad array of different groups who have joined together in this moment. And I think that's precisely why the regime is, is pretty frightened uh, about the potential of this movement. So that's interesting. I mean, the fact that these sort of professional groups that even uh, certain military members um, are, are willing to join these protests suggests to me that they think um, that these protests might have a chance of, of succeeding. I mean, Sudan is, uh, you know, an authoritarian place. The consequences for joining these protests can be pretty severe. Yes, I think the thing to keep in mind here is that, you know, Sudan has had a long history of protest uh, going back to the 1964 October Revolution, uh, which was the first time in Africa and the Arab world more broadly uh, where a popular uprising overthrew a military dictatorship. Um, and again, in 1985, they had something that's referred to as the popular uprisings, where similarly, uh, a broad coalition of different groups uh, came together to overthrow a military dictatorship. So the Sudanese have done this not just once, but twice uh, in its history. And so uh, since Bashir came to power in 1989, one of his big fears has been the possibility uh, of just such an uprising, you know, cognizant of the fact that those are the only ways in which military dictatorships have been overthrown in the past. And so what he's done uh, spent a lot of resources and time trying to protest-proof the capital city of Khartoum. And so unlike the earlier two waves, which really unfolded in the Khartoum region, uh, Khartoum has basically been a very difficult site in which to organize such a broad-based movement. And what's interesting at this moment, I think, is that, uh, you know, even as he's sort of devoted so much attention to protest-proofing Khartoum, uh, he... He pushed the military out of Khartoum again for fear, because again, in the earlier revolutions, the military sided with the protesters and, and proved to be the uh, the critical force that prevented the government from uh, cracking down on the protest movement. So partially to be 
to prevent just such a possibility, uh, Bashir has spent a long time sort of deploying the military to these more remote regions while cultivating a more uh, loyal security force for the Khartoum region itself. But this may have backfired for him uh, in that now these military forces are scattered around the country, uh, and that's precisely where these this protest wave uh, has has generated the greatest strength. That that is fascinating because I was going to ask you in my next question, like like how has Omar al Bashir sort of coup proofed, um, which is sort of a term of art used in in political science uh, in order to, uh, which sort of describes the ways in which dictators um, try to prevent themselves from getting toppled in in, in a coup. Um, there's like a whole you know for for people who are not political scientists, there's like a whole. Um, range of studies about how you know dictators go about coup proofing, but you said it's part and parcel of protest proofing um, uh, Khartoum. That's fascinating to me. Yeah, and I think one you know one of the really interesting things when I was in Khartoum a few years ago uh, is just the degree to which the government has feared the emergence of such a popular uprising. Um, shortly after the so-called Arab Awakenings uh, in 2011, there were a number of uh, attempts to to initiate. Uh, a similar protest movement in Khartoum itself, uh, organized primarily by students and civil society. Uh, and those were largely unsuccessful. And, and they continued for a couple of years and, and eventually did spread to the kind of the more remote regions of Khartoum, uh, these areas in which you have a lot of migrant populations from more remote parts of the country. Uh, and the Bashir regime really cracked down very heavily on those protests in particular, opening fire on the protesters, killing a couple hundred by, according to human rights organizations. But they've also spent a lot of time trying to transform the capital region itself. So, for example, uh, Khartoum as a city is actually three separate cities that is bisected by the Blue Nile and the White Nile. And there are a series of bridges that connect the three different parts of Khartoum to each other. Uh, and if you go to Khartoum, what you'll notice uh, is that all of these bridges have single lane highways, despite the fact that they could hold a much larger uh, number of vehicles to cross at any of these points. And I asked my driver and some friends who were there about, you know, why it is that it's so difficult because it contributes to the horrific traffic in Khartoum. And it was basically because they wanted a way to uh, set up choke points to prevent protesters from crossing from one part of Khartoum into another. And the way to do that was by making sure that each of these bridges would only allow a trickle of traffic through at any given moment uh, so as to prevent protesters from crossing from, say, Omdurman into Khartoum uh, or vice versa. So the regime has really put a lot of effort uh, with the intention uh, preventing just such a mass uprising from taking place. Uh, but in this case, they, they seem to have uh, miscalculated uh, where exactly these protests would emerge from. Uh, and it's posing a real challenge for their capacity to to repress them. So I wanted to take a step back a little bit and have you explain um, who is Omar al-Bashir? He is now one of the region, one of Africa's longest uh, serving uh, rulers, having been president of Sudan since 1989, uh, I believe you said, when he uh, toppled the previous government in a coup. Who is he? How did he emerge? And how has he ruled Sudan in the like, 28, 29 years since? Sure. So in 1986, as I mentioned, um, or 1985, sorry, there was something referred to as the popular uprisings, which were successful in overthrowing the military dictatorship at the time. Now, unfortunately, you know, after the the protest was successful in displacing the dictatorship, uh, the country fell into disarray as a number of opposition parties jockeyed for control uh, of the post-revolutionary state. Uh, and out of this four-year sort of uh, period of uncertainty, Bashir emerged largely with the support of a man named Hassan al-Turabi, uh, who was an Islamist leader and who really sort of helped Bashir consolidate power 
Uh, and so Bashir was able to take advantage of some of the post-revolutionary uh, turmoil uh, to come to power in Sudan and then quickly set about consolidating his power by bringing in the Islamists and working very closely with a variety of different security forces to consolidate control over the country. Uh, one thing that is important to understand about Bashir, you know, despite the fact that he came to power with the support of the Islamists, uh, he is not easy to pin down ideologically. He doesn't seem to have any strong uh, attachment to, uh, to, say, Islamist philosophy. He doesn't seem to sustain any long-term uh, relationships to different alliances. Uh, instead, his regime has proven remarkably nimble uh, at navigating between various currents, both within Sudan uh, as well as sort of in the broader geopolitical context. Uh, and that, I think, is a big part of why he has been able to survive as long as he has. So, for example, if you remember, the United States at one point had considered putting uh, Sudan as part of its axis of evil. Um, you know, uh, Osama bin Laden was based in Khartoum for many years. Uh, but when sort of confronted with this kind of pressure, Bashir was very willing to to uh, push bin Laden out of the country. Uh, more recently, you know, Sudan has been uh, uh, faced with U.S. sanctions for quite some time now. Um, and as a result of some backdoor negotiations with the Trump administration, uh, there has been a lifting of those sanctions uh, in Sudan. And so you see that this is a regime that is, is very capable of, of forming alliances and relationships as necessary to ensure its survival. So even as I think it's facing the most profound crisis uh, to its stability in the almost three decades it's been in power, uh, it's fair to say that you know we shouldn't underestimate its capacity uh, to develop new relationships and new strategies to stay in power for sometime in the future. Yeah, I mean, it's interesting that you said that he's he's sort of proven to be so ideologically nimble. I, I remember during the the Darfur genocide, uh, you know that that he was he was always someone, of course, who was um, you know head of state at the time, but was not someone who sort of professed like racism against the Darfuris. It was just sort of a tactic to suppress an insurgency um, that just happened to be a, like a, a useful and an effective tactic to, to sort of commit genocide against the population from which the insurgency emerged. I think that's correct. I mean, I think one of the big issues in Sudan and, and, and necessarily when we talk about Darfur, we have to talk about South Sudan, uh, is that, you know, under the sort of the, the leadership of John Garang, who was the creator of the Sudan People's Liberation Army, uh, which led South Sudan to independence, um, prior to his death in 2005, you know, what he was trying to do uh, was to bring together a coalition of groups from around the country, including in the capital region, uh, to bring about a, a sort of more popular democratic revolution in Sudan. Uh, and his goal was not necessarily uh, to break apart the country, but rather to bring together a coalition of groups from Darfur. Uh, the SPLA was very active in Darfur, for example, uh, from the Nuba Mountains, from other parts of the country. They could actually challenge the dominance of this narrow set of elites in Khartoum that have really controlled the country since independence. And so if you think about the Bashir regime as being sort of the continu continuation of this long-term pattern of Sudanese political development, I mean, basically, you can go back to the colonial period and you can see that the, the country has always been controlled by a narrow group of people from around Khartoum who were given power at, at, the, at the end of British colonialism and who have sort of really worked to sort of create a variety of different cleavages along racial lines, along religious lines, along economic lines, along regional lines uh, that have really helped them control the country 
ever since. Uh, but, you know, I think that most people in Sudan are not uh, defined by sort of racist attitudes or, or anti-Christian attitudes or whatever other markers that we might associate with them, but are in fact uh, exploited by this narrow elite who are now being challenged in a way that hopefully will, will finally bring their, their long sort of reign of power in Sudan to an end. So, so that actually leads into my next question, which is like, what is Bashir's base of, of support then? I mean, you know, presumably, you know, he's been in power so long, he has these like patronage networks that, you know, lots of dictators have have developed, you know, using sort of the positions of, of state to, you know, confer favors and money and, and wealth and, and jobs, basically, to, to supporters. But beyond like the patronage network that I presume he has, like, what, who supports him? Yeah, it's a good question. So it's mostly a, a kind of a cabal of economic and, and political elites uh, based in the Khartoum region, many of whom who have very strong uh, business ties to other countries in the Middle East and in Africa, uh, and who have really benefited uh, from the types of policies that Bashir has, has, has promoted in that country, even as the vast majority of the people continue to live in, in fairly uh, poor economic conditions. So if you look at Sudan, one of the things that's interesting is that there are a lot of Sudanese who live in, say, the Gulf states, uh, in places like Saudi Arabia or Qatar, uh, who have become quite wealthy and who continue to direct investment into that country with the full support of the Bashir regime. Uh, and so Bashir, you know, even as he's been sort of cut off and perhaps precisely because he has been cut off by the West, uh, has done a, a really strong job of cultivating relationships uh, with other economic powers, both in the region and more broadly. So in the Gulf states, especially, uh, you have a large Sudanese diaspora that is quite economically powerful uh, and that continues to support the regime. You also have China, uh, which Bashir has really worked to cultivate on its side uh, and, again, has played a very central role in allowing the regime to survive a number of different challenges over the past decade. Um, so, you know, I think, again, it's 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 not that the Bashir regime works for nobody. Uh, it's just that it works for a very small set uh, of Sudanese elites uh, who are now having their uh, uh, their positions questioned in a way that we've not seen before. And one thing I want to just emphasize on this, this includes many of the so-called leaders of the opposition parties. So uh, if you look at many of the figures who lead the official opposition parties in Sudan, uh, many of them come from this same set of economic and political elites that have controlled the country for decades. And their involvement with the protests uh, is is something uh, of uh, well at least among some of the protesters, there's a fair degree of suspicion about what their true motivations are. So, how significant do you think this current protest movement is to the reign of of Omar al Bashir and to the you know the political system as it has been established in Sudan over the last several decades? Well, you know, I, I I hesitate to make predictions because I, I don't want to imply in any way that, that we have seen uh, any clear breaking points within the regime. Uh, I think, you know, even at this point, uh, Bashir still has a lot of resources at his disposal uh, that can allow him to sustain his power. Uh, and that there are a lot of people within the regime who are not necessarily uh, comfortable with the idea of Bashir leaving power, uh, precisely because they don't want to face the type of reckoning that they may face if they lose control of the country. Um, but that being said, I mean, I think, you know, one thing to emphasize here is that Bashir is quite old. Uh, there were rumors around the 2015 election that he was uh, putting in place a, a succession plan to pass power to his vice presidency. Uh, there have been rumors that he is facing a number of health crises. He's in his 70s already. Um, and so I think that there is a, an opportunity uh, for some sort of negotiated process here. 
I think to me, that's the best case scenario. Um, you know, partially because these protests have brought together such a disparate group of people. I think there's a lot of anxiety in Khartoum and elsewhere about what comes after Bashir. This has been a, a topic of conversation uh, probably since around 2012, when the last wave of protest uh, really struck. And so, you know, I think there is uh, perhaps enough of a, an incentive structure in place that forces within the regime may be willing to abandon Bashir uh, through some sort of negotiated process and then preside over some sort of negotiated uh, transition process. Uh, to me, that's the best case scenario. That's uh, like the Milosevic uh, sort of scenario, it, it, it sounds like. And it seems like there are so many parallels between like the Milosevic situation of like the early of, of like, was it 2000 and of uh, the Bashir situation now? I mean, both have these indictments hanging over their heads, both were well, in, in Milosevic's case, he was sort of ousted by a popular um, uprising and the newly installed government thought it was worthwhile to sort of send him to, to the Hague. I guess I'm wondering if that um, if that analogy rings true at all to you and also sort of like what effect this hanging uh, ICC indictment has over this whole situation. Yeah, so in my view, I mean, it may be somewhat controversial, but I think it's it's counterproductive at this point. Um, you know, the ICC has not necessarily proven its capacity to hold uh, such figures like Bashir accountable. Bashir has openly flaunted his capacity to travel uh, despite the ICC warrant um, uh, for his arrest. And so I I worry that, you know, the insistence that the uh, that we sort of prosecute Bashir through the ICC is inhibiting the possibility of other types of settlements that may be better for the people of Sudan. Because it might uh, be make him like less willing to give up power. Exactly. I mean, you know, we could imagine a scenario in which Bashir is allowed to go to Qatar or Saudi Arabia and live out the rest of his years on a in, in a mansion in Jeddah. You know, that that to me may be something that is desirable. Uh, but he may fear doing that because going to Saudi Arabia as a non-head of a state. Uh, may expose him to more risk in terms of an arrest by the ICC. Hmm. Um, so it, over the next you know, few weeks, few months, um, what are you looking uh, for or what are you looking towards that might suggest to you um, how this protest movement will, will play out? Are there any significant like inflection points um, that might uh, suggest to you one way or another um, how this situation may progress? I think the big one, big question that remains right now is what are the role of the different armed groups uh, that have been operating in Sudan uh, over the past couple of decades and have not necessarily revealed how, where they stand in relation to the protests? Um, you know, as you know, and I think as most of the listeners are aware, you know, this is a huge country, uh, you know, something on the order of the size of Western Europe. Uh, and it has many different armed groups that are operating mostly in the peripheral regions of the country. Um, you know, I think that what they decide to do at this point, would they be willing to overtly support uh, a nonviolent protest movement? Um, will they be willing to cede some degree of control? Would they be willing to uh, evolve their demands away from, say, secession or other types of regionally focused uh, agendas in favor of a more nationalist program uh, of democratization? Uh, all of these sorts of questions, I think, are going to be very important for determining uh, whether the protests will be able to continue to challenge the regime in ways that make its end inevitable. And I think the, you know, the, the, the challenge that we are facing right now is that there isn't, and I think this is both a strength and a weakness, 
um, thus far, there isn't a real clear leadership within the broader protest movement. So it's not uh, clear to me, at least, and I think other analysts and, and people involved in the protests themselves, uh, about who could, say, bring together all of these disparate forces into some sort of broader process, right? Um, they can start to articulate a new post-Bashir vision for what Sudan should be in the future. And I think that's really the the, the question now is, is, do we have uh, leadership on the ground uh, who is accepted by the protesters, uh, but also has the capacity to begin negotiations with the armed groups, with civil society, with the workers, with the ordinary people at the heart of these protests, with the religious forces who are involved, uh, and perhaps bring them into a broad sort of people-centric coalition uh, that can not only push for the end of the Bashir regime, but start to carve out a new sovereign uh, constitution uh, for the country after 30 years of, of misrule by the Bashir regime. Uh, well, Professor, thank you so much for your time. This was very, very helpful. Thank you for having me. All right. Thank you all for listening. Thank you to Professor Zechariah Cherry and Mompili. That was really interesting. I particularly found that part about uh, protest proofing the streets of Khartoum to be really interesting. As I sort of referenced uh, in the episode, there's like a whole body of political science literature about how authoritarian regimes coup proof themselves. Uh, and I, I sort of never quite appreciated that that could extend to. Um, protest proofing the capital city interesting stuff in any case uh please do join that referral program earn rewards for yourself by for the simple act of sharing the show telling people about the show uh, follow the links on globaldispatchespodcast.com or in the description page of this podcast episode and uh, that'll take you to the referral program please do spread the good word about the show and as always, a big thank you to the Global Development Institute at the University of Manchester. Got some great episodes coming up in January and February from that content partnership. See you later. Bye.